Today's lesson is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 and then 6 to 14. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. A son honors his father, a servant their master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted, polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great upon, among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been given by violence, or is lame, or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in their flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. second reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks they are something... When they are nothing, they deceive themselves. But let each one test their own work, and then their reason to boast will be in theirs alone and not in their neighbor. For each will have to bear their own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that they will also reap. For the one who sows to their own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit 
reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray to be pure and unreserved in our daily offering of ourselves and our service unto you by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in the uh, last book of our summer uh, teaching series, and we won't have as much time in it as we did with Haggai and, uh, and Zechariah. Now, in Malachi, there's a tiny debate over the name, as it may or may not be the actual name of the prophet. See, it translates into his angel or his messenger. It could be just a title of someone we don't know. We don't know for sure, but we at least know that Malachi was the last prophet uh, who ministered in Jerusalem until another prophet came onto the scene some 400 years afterwards. That man was John the Baptizer. Now for a bit of background, Malachi ministered uh, around 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah. It was 100 years after them. That's a long time. The original leaders of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, they were already dead. The second temple was up and running. The sacrifices were again being offered up. Life for the remnant was pretty much back to the way things were. Now, that was the problem as well. Things were back to the way things were. Doing the same terrible things that their ancestors did that had led them to exile in the first place. The sacrifices were robotic and reckless. People withheld the required temple taxes to the priests. Men divorced their wives for younger non-Jewish women. And then they worshipped their gods in turn. The rich, they enslaved fellow Jews who owed them money. People worked all day, all night on the Sabbath. There was idolatry. There was injustice again in the land. Now, these, even after back in the exile, it's come back to this. So how is this all happening again? Now, you may recall that when the Jews were first allowed to go back home from exile, there was great fear and great anticipation. See, this gave the people and this adrenaline rush to start anew, to begin something that a new generation of Jews had never experienced before. And alongside them were the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, spurring them on, spurring them on with new prophetic imagination and hope. There was again the promise of a king who will establish the messianic age in Israel and beyond. So the people got to work. They were excited. They were afraid. But their hearts were pumping. The blood was rushing and they got to work. They rebuilt the temple. They immediately started their life back in the land. Challenging times, but changeful times when people responded to the message of the prophets. 
They'd rededicated their lives to God. Revivals were fresh in their memories. There were these clear, direct calls to change, and people felt like the day of the Lord was upon them. But then years and years went by, the people became jaded. They became jaded. Years turned into decades. There was no prophet Haggai. There was no Zechariah. Leaders like Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were no more. They were prodding the people from nodding off and dozing off. And time and ease had everyone slouching. And those who had the means began to hoard for luxuries and pleasures. Now, a recent study last year, they were conducted by Lifeway Research. Uh, survey, they surveyed a thousand American pastors. In the survey, they asked these pastors to identify modern day idols that have lasting influence over their ch- church congregations today. So they identified top eight, eight modern idols in 2021, and they are as follows, in descending order. Number one, comfort, security, money, approval, success, social influence, political power, romantic love. We're probably not surprised by this list. These are great and appealing things in a society like ours to have. It's not wrong to have any of these things, but they've become such an obsession, even in our own lives. As I observe it here at Little T, as I see it in myself, you and I were habitually lulled by the siren calls of comfort, security, and money. It's become industrially efficient and convenient for many, many of us to just drift into today's cultural expectation that we work and we earn our wages for the goal of leisure and cozy living, vacations, travel, shiny things in our life, at least for us who can't afford it. This shifts a large portion of our time, our attention, and our money away from our social and spiritual obligations to God and to others, especially to the least of our society. Now, that was the same for the Jewish remnant. After so long living as political refugees, they finally got back home. They rebuilt their economy from nothing, rebuilt their temple, restarted the sacrifices at the initial cost of the little they had. Every family started off at equal ground. Everyone pitched in. They had work to do. They had their own share of work, and everyone reaped the fruits of the labor. But then the city grew. That was fantastic. Entrepreneurs and investors now had this booming market of population explosion as repatriated Jewish families. They left the Persian Persian provinces around them for a fresh start back in Israel. Small businesses became big. Homes were being built and occupied The horizon for opportunity and profit, it broadened. And just as gains were being made, disparity crept up beside the revenues. A social hierarchy emerged. Some people got more and more. Many others got less and less. Even the priests and Levites, they exploited the system. 
they let the people do whatever they wanted so they could be liked, that they could gain the people's favor. The rich and powerful, they indulge, they put their feet up on the backs of the poor. Those who had to work even harder, selling even themselves to their lenders. This was now the social landscape of Malachi's time. This was a hundred years after Haggai and Zechariah. Now at the same time, okay, that was the social landscape. At the same time, everyone, every single person was grumbling against God. Those who were being taken advantage accused God of abandoning them, forsaking them to the predators. They felt forgotten and discarded. Now, meanwhile, the rich and the powerful felt like it was up to them to rebuild this covenant community by their hard work, by their sacrifice, by their investments. They started to think, God didn't do anything for us. We built this all on our own. They felt entitled and self-sufficient. Everyone felt like they were left to themselves to make up for the unfulfilled promises that God gave them long ago. The words of Haggai and Zechariah from a hundred years back about this messianic age, they lost their meaning. They lost their power. They were empty words, false promises from an absent and distant God. People were saying, God left us. He doesn't listen to our prayers. He won't budge even if we offered the prize sheep and goat and cattle. What's the use of worship? We're on our own here. God doesn't love us. He forgot about us. Injustice in the land, idolatry in the land, religious disenchantment in the land. Everyone was bored, passive, careless, and cynical. That sounds familiar, right? So many people in this city, or even some of us here right now, we're feeling the same way about all this religious stuff. Why are you here? Why would you spend an hour and a half or two hours of your Sunday doing this thing? You may be feeling we're really on our own in this life, right? I I work hard, pay the bills. Try to take care of my family. Where is God? There's no God. Even if there was, he doesn't care. It's up to you and me to make meaning in this life and to make a difference in this world. That's what the world is saying and teaching us. Now, that was the religious landscape of Malachi's time. But then suddenly, God spoke up. God spoke up. God's words for the first time after almost a century, they came as a very hard word, now confronting the people, addressing their accusations against them. And so let's look at it together. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or apps. We could go to Malachi chapter 1. You can grab a pew Bible. It's in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you can find it. We're in Malachi chapter 1. So we are in verse 1. It starts with, these are the hard words of God now. It begins with the oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word oracle here is a peculiar word, and it means more accurately burden or weight. It's a heavy weight. 
From the get-go, Malachi is now carrying this burden of the hard words of God to his people. (laughs) These words are not going to be pretty. They're not going to be polite. They're going to be straight up and at times very brutal. See, if you've ever had the chance to read the book of Malachi, the whole thing, you will notice that God is very angry. He is very angry. He's fuming. And he goes all out against his people. God is very rude in this book, in your face. Now, the rest of the book is actually written like a transcript of a court trial with God cross-examining Israel as he defends himself against their charges. Because Israel, in, for a long time now, had metaphorically served God papers, right? And charged him for being negligent, for being a liar, for being absent, Now in response, God brings his own charges to Israel and he serves them papers instead. In verse 6, God appeals to the people's social custom that expected a child to honor their parent or a servant to respect their master. That was the custom back then. Now God argues that he is a father and master of Israel. Where is the respect and honor due to him? The people are playing this double standard. So how then was God being disrespected and dishonored? In verse 7, the priests, they were cutting corners. They were sloppy. They were offering animals that were blind, lame, blemished, diseased, or that have already died from illness or being predated by injury. The priests were offering scraps and leftovers to God in the temple. Now, even though the priests, they were the ones doing this, the people were the ones presenting these animals for the priests to process. Both priests and people, they connived to get rid of their junk animals by offering them as sacrifices. They thought, oh, two birds with one stone. I can get rid of my garbage and offer them up as a gift to God. Well, that's efficient. But there's no such thing as efficiency When it comes to worship. So then God says, try giving your scraps and leftovers to your governor. See how he will treat you. You wouldn't dare offend your own human leader this way. And yet you insult me with your hand-me-downs from the discard pile. Then comes this punch to the gut line in verse 10. God here is wishing out loud. He is thinking out loud that someone would just please lock the doors of the temple, close down church, than for garbage to be continually presented to him. It's pretty wild for God to say that he'd rather not be worshipped at all if his people kept on in their charade of going through the motions without them burning any real calories. I mean, why would you bother putting rubbish in a gift basket You wrap it up in this shiny cellophane and put a ribbon on top of it. I mean, save yourself the trouble. If it's trouble to worship me, says God. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. God was obviously sore, but this was not coming from a place of need or insecurity or a lack of self-esteem. In verse 11, this is really the point of the whole book of Malachi. This is the thesis statement. God peels back the skies 
And he unveils the cosmic reality that he is, in fact, already worshipped and glorified by all that he has made. That is the point of the book of Malachi. From the rising of the sun and to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. God is not out to milk every drop of worship from everyone and everything, as though he could not get enough attention from you and me. Rather, God is prompting his people to the transcendent reality that is already around them, that is around us, that is pulsating with endless and imperceptible praise and glory unto him by all angels and archangels, by all the company of heaven and earth, by all that is visible and invisible. But they were only choosing to miss out. They were choosing to lose out on that privilege. They refuse to see what's already going on around them. God gave Israel the exclusive pleasure and right to call him God and Father. And for them to be called his people. When no other nation or people had opportunity. So God then says to them, all right, if you won't take this seriously, there's already an entire cosmos exuding with praise for me. And then I will invite the rest of the world to get the chance later on. But you would have only decided to miss out. You would have decided to lose out on the worship of the great king of the universe. That's exactly what happened. The Gentiles were brought into the worship of Yahweh through Jesus. And this was because the Jews finally rejected Jesus and killed him on the cross. I'm not making this up. This was the Apostle's Paul, Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9 to 11. You can look at it later on. And the people complained in verse 13. Oh, oh, what a weariness this is. They snort and sneer at the Lord's table. That's not in reference to the communion table. That's about the tables where the priests would slaughter the animals. The people, they sighed and they groaned whenever it was time again to go up to the temple and present something. Worship was such a drag. Worship was so exhausting. I have to pay up. I have to give up my best. And for what? God doesn't do anything. But then in verse 14, finally, God, this is, this is pretty intense, God curses those who pledge something to give, but then withholds it. Cursed is the cheat who withholds a male from their flock and gives something that is bad. Intense words. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything else is satanic. <laughs> Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? They, uh, they pledged the full sum of their land sale money but kept a bit of it without declaring it. And then the Apostle Peter calls them out. You didn't lie to me, but you lied to the Spirit. Both husband and wife, they die right in there in front of Peter. It's a fearful thing to approach God and to present ourselves in our gifts. Yes, a great joy, a great pleasure and privilege in Jesus Christ. But it's such a hazard if we would presume upon his mercies to abuse his grace and patience, if we think we can get away by cheaping out on our service and obligations unto him. 
God cannot be mocked. Paul writes in our Galatians reading, we reap what we sow. If we invest into our own flesh, that is our sinful, selfish desires, we will yield the fruit of the corruption of our souls and we are damned forever. But if we invest into the Spirit who lives and breathes in us, we will yield the life that is godly, that is generous, that is kind, that is wise, that is sacrificial. We won't weep when we lose something. That is when we've given it according to our will and means. In a life that is interested in others, even now this is the fruit of eternal life. A life that is like Jesus Christ. I know these have been hard words. I'm I'm simply trying to channel what Malachi has said in the beginning. I mean, the heavy burden of Malachi's words emerged out of almost a hundred years of abuse and apathy among God's people, so asked to then confront them of their sins. I mean, isn't it already time in the Christian church, after decades, even centuries, of our own abuse and apathy, that hard words should come to jab us from our passivity and stupor? Have we grown comfortable? Have we grown sluggish in our own affluence and self-sufficiency? Do we give our best and our fattest portions to the work and mission of God's kingdom? It's not a sacrifice unless it costs us. It's not a sacrifice unless it should cost us. Or have we become so efficient in our Christian worship that we can conveniently just offer our leftovers of our time, of our energies, our resources to the work and worship of Jesus in this place or wherever you are in your life. I'm not saying neglect yourselves in your own and live miserable lives. You may enjoy what God has given you. You have been given that gift. It's a blessing for you to enjoy. But you are blessed so that you may bless others. I'm not even saying give more of your time and money to church, though I am saying that. Plus, give to other ministries and Missions, there are lots besides Christian and church causes. There are many in the world that is aligned even with the kingdom work of God. Does it have to be Christian? The kingdom is bigger than just church. That may be a controversial statement, but you can come to me afterwards. We can talk about it. But the reality is, for most of us who live comfortable and affluent lives, we are especially called upon by God to be thoughtful, to be intentional, to be extra careful with the surplus of our wealth, our health, our ability with our extra time. If you can afford to have days off and vacations at length, will you not give that up to volunteer? That's a suggestion. Because to whom much is given, much is required. With the more one is entrusted, that much more is expected of them. Let's consider then how to give our best from our best, whether out of the abundance or the scarcity of our means, each according to their conscience. God loves a cheerful giver. It's not, we're not to be compulsive or, or guilty in our giving. 
Let's be cheerful. Let's be delightful. Let's love and cherish in our giving that Jesus may be worshipped and glorified in us and around the world. Now let me end with this last uh, reflection. Now part of Israel's apathy came from their feeling as though God forgot about them. Right? That was happening in their lives. They were waiting a long time for the prophecies and promises to come true. And they felt like they were on their own. There are probably some of us here who feel the same way. Right? Like, you may be thinking, what's the point of all this Christianity business? Like, why keep at this charade of going to church in the morning, Bible and prayer, all this Christian stuff? I've been waiting for so long, my prayers are not heard. I don't see my prayers answered at all. I mean, those are real struggles. They're legitimate ones. And I don't presume to be able to answer that right now. It'll take a long time, perhaps. The Apostle Paul has a bit of a response to that. It, it doesn't emotionally resolve those struggles right now, but it is a response. Regardless, in our Galatians reading in verse 9, Paul writes, this is a word for you if you are in this place right now. This is a word for you. Let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. If you're struggling with waiting for God to show up for whatever it is in your life that you need a miracle for, or for some promise to come true, you're probably already trying and doing your darndest to be faithful and to do good. And it's a very real temptation now to just give up, just to abandon hope when it feels like it's all for nothing. See, as Christians at this point of history, we, we have the privileged vantage point of being able to look back in time and to trace the fingerprints of God throughout history. There are clear moments of divine intervention, moments when God did show up in the past, moments perhaps even in your own life that you can attest that this was God. God came through because of a friend, because of a family, because of a sign because of a check in the mailbox, an e-transfer that did not know where it came from. This has to be God. You could say that in your life. But I know they are, these moments are far and few in between. We wish they were more frequent. I wish that for my own life. Many people of faith waited for a long time, and many of them suffered and died without seeing those promises fulfilled. But it is not for you to know the times and the seasons appointed by my Father, says our Lord. But you will receive power from heaven when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the world. The Spirit has indeed come upon us. What a gift. We have become witnesses and even martyrs of God's promises made true in Jesus in this world. What a gift. We look back in time as we look ahead. We can hope and trust and long for Jesus to show up again as he did before. This is why we don't give up. That we don't lose hope. 
that we don't grow weary of our enduring loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ, even at such a cost, even at such a length of time to endure, at such temptations to abandon him and just grab and hoard and relax. This is all of life, just YOLO this life, this is it. That's a temptation for each one of us. But there is work to be done. There is a reward to be had. God will come back and undo the wrongs. And he will reward each of us according to our faith. Jesus will come to you and he will reward you for your faith. We look forward to the day when he comes to us face to face. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Why don't you come in into my joy that will last forever? For from the rising of the sun into its setting, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be great among the nations. Because of that, let's draw near to him and offer ourselves as a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto him, giving him our best from our best, persevering in the long and the hard work of the gospel in this world to the end that he may take pleasure in us and in our service, that he may be feared in all the world as he is in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.